HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Daniel Bender. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our summer issue, 2023, volume 23, issue 2, is out now, published this week in fact. It features articles on working with food with a focus on urban transformations, work and play, and markets. We're joined today by Ellen Miser, an assistant professor in sociology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. She studies a range of food topics from culinary workers to food media. And she's also the co-host of the Social Breakdown, an accessible sociology podcast. And she joins us today from Hilo, Hawaii, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, I'm excited. Today's an exciting podcast for me. It really is because we get to talk about a photo essay, an oral medium to talk about the visual and indeed the gustatory. And your extraordinary images introduce the Taipei, Taiwanese, Tsai Shuchang street markets. But they're much, much more than just a place to buy food. Tourists in Taiwan are known for flocking to the night markets, as you point out. And indeed, we have night markets, Taiwanese-style night markets here in Toronto. Nice. These day markets, as you put it, when the sun comes up, these day markets deserve attention. Can you tell us about these markets? What drew you to them? Sure, yeah. So Taiwan, I've always thought of as a second home. Uh, it's where my mom was born and raised and where her mother was born. She was um, raised on the mainland and then came back after uh, the World War II and Chinese Revolution and all of that stuff. Um, but it's a place that I always visited as a young person and somebody, someplace where I would go pretty much every other year at the very least. 
And so the Tsai Sitsang, the traditional markets, or sometimes called wet markets, just colloquially, was a place that I would travel to um, every single time. And that's usually the first place I would go to when I touched down in Taiwan, and it would be the last place that I would go to before I left uh, the the country to come back to the U.S. Um, there are these spaces that are just so exciting to be in. I don't know, Dan, if you're one of those people who goes to grocery stores or food places when you go to a new place. I don't. Are you one of those tourists? I a hundred percent am, and, okay. and and indeed, I'm also just one of those shoppers. Every week is, I do our our shopping at yes. our market here in Toronto. That's part of what drew me to 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 this particular project, and it's an, an interesting one for me because you decided to go to the market as a as a photographer first mm. and a sociologist second. Third, what yeah. what made the decision for you to go camera in hand? Yeah, so okay, I might I might adjust that list and say I went there as just a fan of food and food spaces first, second as a photographer, and then third as a kind of sociology social science person. And the reason why is because a I love it. I love spaces where I can see people interact with food, with food producers. I can see them taste things and barter, not barter, sorry, bargain, um, all of that, all of that excitement. And I really wanted to take photos of it and document it for people who either had not heard of the traditional day markets in Taiwan because they are so overshadowed by night markets. Um, and then also just to document it for my own enjoyment. It's just something that I've done for years now is take photos of the Tsai Sitsang near my uh, grandmother's house and just watch people. Um, and usually they're very okay with it. I mean, they are all very okay with it because by this point in time, uh, I know many of them, not all of them because the vendors change um, every now and then, but uh, I'm a familiar person for the most part. And so it's not so intrusive. And so that was my, my main goal. So can you bring us inside these markets and I'm, I'm going to throw a challenge at you to do so in the most multi-sensory of ways. Like, tell us about the okay. sound, the smells, the sights, the tastes. Where do you want to begin? Okay. So, so sounds, sounds, the sounds of the Taiwanese Tai Sitang, I would describe as a raucous kind of dissonant soundscape, if you will. You have a whole entire street, which is, you know, it could be six to 10 city blocks long. So these very long stretches of, of uh, streetways where vendors are calling out to potential customers in Mandarin, but then also in Taiwanese. So there's all of these different dialects and languages happening. They're telling you about their uh, newest product, their cheap prices, the quality of their goods, right? They're advertising, and it's very interactive. Um, and then, of course, you have just kind of the background noise of people just working and then also walking, walking through the market, uh, working at the market. And then uh, behind them is, of course, this rumble of engines usually because there's inevitably a car that forgets that there's a market on that street and they try and inch their way through the crowd, which the crowd, you know, 
cares not at all about moving out of the way. You know, they're very focused on on doing what they're supposed to do, which is to shop and to enjoy themselves. And then there's also mopeds. Mopeds are a constant in Taiwan. If you've ever traveled there, you know that there's hordes of mopeds and, and motorcycles traveling the streets. And so you have this kind of buzz of engines. You have this buzz of people, uh, buzz of business. And it's something that is very... Um, like I said, dissonant, but at the same time, it has this melody to it that it's hard to describe. Uh, I think you said sights. Sights are the next thing. So as you walk down the Tsai Sitang, you hit uh, vendor stall after vendor stall. And there's a usually a very big variety. It's not just food products like um, freshly squeezed sugar cane juice, where you're watching the business owner squeeze it manually or you know sometimes they'll have an electric machine but it's this very kind of visceral thing to watch happen so you have food items but you also have household goods and things that you would never expect that you would want to even buy or think existed right things like um, waist trainers for men right <laughs> okay if you want that you can find it there um, you can also find things like lululemon leggings if you would like right there's this huge variety of products um, and there's a variety of people who are hawking those products and then also shopping for. Um, I think you mentioned smell. So smells, I, I kind of relate to um, the smells of the Taisatong are very similar to the smells of when you walk through our typical Western malls and you walk past an Auntie Annie's pretzel shop or, you know, one of those spaces where you can smell the freshly baked items wafting through the air. It's like that, but with a bigger variety of foods. So you kind of smell each item as you walk past it. And of course you salivate a little bit and you think about, mm, should I get that? And then you walk past and you say, okay, when I come back, I'll, I'll get that, right? So it's kind of this, this very uh, attractive uh, smellscape, if you will. Um, and then taste is another big thing. You know, taste, of course, comes into play. What's the first thing you buy when you get to the market? Oh, first thing I buy is a variety of fruit. The fruits in Taiwan are superior to like nowhere else I've ever been, including here in Hawaii where we have an amazing variety of fruits. Fruits in Taiwan are something else. And I think part of that has to do with just how uh, constant fruits are in everybody's everyday diets. Um, you know, I don't think my family was alone in, in being one of those families where there was a fruit at every single meal, right? And usually a variety of fruits. And so fruits are huge over there. And then I always get what's called a fantuan, which is a rice ball, not very similar to what you think of as an omusubi in Japan, but instead they use uh, sticky rice, glutinous rice, and they fill it with pork floss or por pork sung. Sometimes it's what it's called, dried pork, um, a crispy deep fried what they call an oil stick, which is not a, not an appetizing way of describing it, but it's just like a very, very crisply fried piece of dough. They put shallots in it. They put all of these things in it and they wrap it up and you eat it out of a plastic bag, which again, doesn't sound appealing, but it's something that you cannot find done well anywhere else, I, I think. You know, I love those descriptions. It's making me hungry, but it also... 
I love the description <laughs> because because of the ways in which you're talking about the ways that the market reclaims the street, like the car forgets mm. that it's not supposed to be there, but also yeah. the ways in which you, you you talked about a cacophony, not just of sounds, but a kind of multi-sensory cacophony. And yeah. it's, a be- it's a beautiful image. And it's why I love markets. And it sounds like similar for you that the, the, the different languages and calls and foods and tastes and smells all overlapping onto each other. But do you think that's also why state regulators sometimes dislike markets? You know, it's interesting. Um, when I was working on this particular essay and getting feedback from people, they asked about whether or not there's this similar kind of negative connotation that we see in other places in the world towards these um, sometimes extra legal markets or um, less policed markets. You know, there's, there's particularly after I think SARS and now COVID, there's this idea from the West um, and likely from the East too, that that markets, particularly wet markets where there's livestock being sold or meat being butchered and stuff like that, um, that these are spaces that are dirty, that are incubators for disease or for bacteria, that they're not sanitary, um, that they're these kind of dangerous spaces. And I, I don't doubt that there are wet markets in the world that do indeed, you know, kind of they are indeed unsanitary. But in Taiwan, that is not at all the sentiment that you see. Um, these are very sanitary spaces. They're usually very well organized by local neighborhood Taishang uh, organizations. And those organizations have hired sanitation teams to come in and clean up every single day after the markets happen. And they also have sanitation standards by which you can sell your products. So um, in Taiwan, you see a very different perspective on the Tai Sitang, which is that these are actually very pro-social and positive spaces, um, positive in terms of health because they provide uh, access to cheap, largely locally produced foods, veggies, fruits, meats, all of that stuff. And then also um, they're very positive spaces just kind of economically and socially and and all that. So there's not that, sorry, that was a very long answer, but there's not that negative kind of icky connotation that sometimes you see attached to wet markets or non, non-heavily regulated markets. I think that's very important because that does stand out in, in the really the global history and global sociology, if you will, of, of markets that have been viewed as, as disorderly, as clogging up the streets. That cacophony yeah. may sound great to you and me, but it might also sound like disorder, social disorder, the oral sure. sound of disease almost, if you will. I, I want to pick out another point about the the street cries, and both in your article and now as you describe it, you, you talked about the different calls of the street vendors in both in, in multiple mm-hmm. dialects. And is that really a sort of tip of the sensory iceberg of a of a kind of um edible multi-sensory cosmopolitanism 
Yeah, I think so because it alerts you right from the get-go. As soon as you turn the corner and you get onto that street, it alerts you that this is a space where there is a variety of people selling their goods, a variety of cuisines, a variety of languages um, calling out. I think to somebody who cannot tell the difference between the languages, they may just see Taiwanese people acting like Taiwanese people. But instead... Um, it really does alert people who are aware of the language, oh, this is a very diverse space. And then when you pay attention to what's being sold, your eyes open up even more to the diversity. Um, and this is because of, of Taiwan's very interesting um, multicultural history. It was a colony of the Portuguese. It was a colony of Japan at one point in time. So with all of those histories comes cuisines and things being sold that you wouldn't imagine them being sold. Um, you know, maki sushi, hand-rolled maki sushi is something that you commonly see um, being sold by vendors. Uh, goods from Japan, from Korea are being sold. And that's because it kind of becomes this hub of, of uh, very exciting, I think you, you called it cosmopolitanism or cosmopolitan um, atmosphere. It becomes that. Um, and it's it makes it even more exciting, for sure. How does that compare to the perhaps better known, at least on a global tourist scale, how does that compare to the night markets? Mm, yeah. So night markets are largely targeted towards tourists. Now, local people also go to night markets, no doubt. But there is this turn by vendors, I think, to create products that are very niche and very kitschy and very Instagrammable nowadays that, you know, we're in the social media era of things. And so the foods that they produce are still very exciting. They are still very Taiwanese. Um, stinky tofu is one that is very common. People go to and, you know, document their, their journeys of trying stinky tofu or tofu. Um, but the daytime market, the Tsai Sitong is different because it's really marketed only to local people, particularly in that neighborhood that it serves. And so it's less kitschy. It's far less Instagrammable. People would think that you're weird, likely if you were to start taking selfies of you eating things at the um, Tsai Sitong. So it's just a different market, I think, um, customer market, I mean, uh, that the vendors are playing to. And, you know, one of the things, again, drawing out that comparison and reading your essay and viewing the images, that age comes up so mm. much. Are these markets, the night market obviously has its, it's the image of the young folks who want to stay up late. Um, yeah. I probably just aged myself right there. Um, but are these, <laughs> are the markets aging out? Mm. Well, it's interesting because, so the markets are open Tuesday through Sunday and from about 9 a.m. till about 1 p.m. So just from those times, you can tell that these markets are not really arranged for everyday working people to go to. Um, instead, it's set up so that largely it's women who are stay-at-home mothers um, or older people who have retired, that is the customer base for these Tsai Sitsang, simply just due to the time range that it's available. 
There are what are called after-hour markets where people whose goods are not sold at the Taishishang can take those goods and sell them after hours, after working hours to people who have just gotten off of work for slightly cheaper because it's considered less fresh after being um, you know, out in display for several hours in the day. But I think that you make a good point, which is if you look at the photos, you'll see largely elderly people out and about shopping. I don't think, though, that that means that the Taisa's hung is aging out. There have been several studies done just about um, meat sellers in particular in Taiwan because, um, you know, uh, a lot of people seek out and buy pork and chicken at the Taisa's hung. And these studies have found that despite the fact that these spaces are really only open for non-working uh, people or non-traditionally working people, um, that people still will go out and seek out those spaces because they see it as a fresher source of goods. So I don't think that uh, the Taisa Hong is going to die out anytime soon. It's just such a staple in everyday life. And people age you know, there's everybody's aging, right? And eventually you'll hit the time when you can be retired and and shop the Taisa Song every single day. So I, I I personally don't see it and the numbers don't show it quite yet. And what about the vendors though? You're, you're mentioning the customers, but are the vendors, is there a, a transition? I mean, are people taking over their parents' stands in the Taisa Song? Mm. Or, or yeah. are there new vendors coming in, bringing new products, perhaps else from elsewhere in Asia? Yeah, so there's both of those things happening. Um, just the Taishishang that I observed and that I'm personally familiar with, I have seen children taking over after after their parents. Um, one of my favorite places to go to later in the day because they stay open later, is a douhua vendor, which is a silken tofu or soft tofu pudding, which is a sweet pudding item, um, a vendor that just sells that. And the parents have reached retirement age and the son is starting up and taking over the business. And this is a common thing that we see, particularly with the more successful vendors, because it is actually a very good money-making enterprise. Um, they generate a lot of revenues and they're known, street vendors are known for driving nice cars and all of that good stuff. So this is this is definitely a, a family business that you could take over. There's also, of course, new vendors coming in, bringing in new products. And one of the photos that I include in the essay is of a young man who I saw um, a couple times the week during the week of observation, who was trying to sell uh, Korean food and capitalize on interest in K-pop and Korean culture and Korean cuisine, all of that stuff that we're seeing with particularly younger generations, but also older generations in Taiwan. Um, and he was selling uh, tok, which is uh, rice cakes. He was also selling kimchi um, and some other variations on Korean cuisines. Of course, he gave them all Chinese names. So tok was called Ningbo rice cakes. Ningbo is a place in China, right? So he's trying to kind of shift or sell sell a new product, but in a way that is very understandable to maybe an older generation of customers. Um, so yeah, you have all of those things happening at once and the market kind of regenerating itself time after time.
You know, I go to, you asked me earlier about how I feel about markets. And the answer is very strongly. <laughs> and I go to a weekly covered market here, here in Toronto and do virtually all of the family food shopping every Saturday. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, it's one of Toronto's biggest tourist attractions. But it's why I go early in the morning to avoid mm -hmm. those naughty tourists. Um, and I, I'm ambivalent <laughs> about their presence there. Um, the vendors might need or want tourist cash, but it changes the market culture. It changes what I can buy. And frankly, as they're sitting there demanding tastes and the like, I have a family to go home to. Um, should for you as somebody who who does come and go but also does shop there do you think that the markets mm -hmm. should become tourist attractions or is this just a secret we should keep amongst ourselves here <laughs> yeah i know maybe we should end this conversation should it be better that the um, tourists just stay at the night markets yeah so this is a hard one because you know i um just a little bit about me i grew up in alaska and we have a very, uh, you know, our economy is heavily dependent on tourism. And now I live in Hawaii, where again, our economy depends heavily on tourism. And there are points at which, you know, I do go into stores and I say, oh gosh, these tourists, just like you going into the, you know, market on the weekends or whenever you go. Um, but there is this uh, very real economic component of what tourists bring. And there's also this uh, almost encouragement or push that tourists also bring with bringing in better products and new things. So I, I do see that regenerative element of tourism. Now, the Taisetang, whether or not it should become a tourist destination, is a question that I also thought about when I was writing this, because one of the things that I say is... Um, you know, I really would like people to recognize how important the Tai Sitang is and how exciting and fun it is to go to. And that it's a space that I bring people who are visiting to when they come to Taiwan. It's someplace that I always want to show people and walk through in the mornings and have them taste things and see things and smell things. So uh, part of me is doing that just in my own personal a situation or my own personal actions, because I think that there is some real value there that people ought to see and recognize and enjoy. Um, and, but I would also say during this week of observation that I went, and this was in the very tail end of December of 2022, beginning of January 2023, I noticed far more people who were from out of town, so tourists or people that, you know, clearly we're from a different country. Um, I noticed far more of those shoppers than I previously had in years past. And so that's a change that I'm seeing already happening. And so maybe, you know, the Tai Sitang will turn into a, um, a tourist destination that's listed on TripAdvisor, just like the markets of Marrakesh or something like that. Right. And you know, yeah, I see I see your facial expression to that where it's like, oh, it kind of ruins it sometimes for local people. Um, but I also, ugh, it's hard for me to to deny people the excitement of a of a Tai Sitang, you know. And might I also add, there are hundreds of Tai Sitang all throughout Taiwan. So there's not just one big one. And so ideally, 
maybe the tourists would spread out and, and go to different ones rather than just going and flooding one, one specific Taizitang. So let's take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Daniel Bender, talking with Ellen Miser about Tsai Taipei Street Markets. I want to turn now, Ellen, to talk about your photography. And you mentioned early in our conversation about the night market as mm -hmm. deeply Instagrammable. Indeed, you probably are not even allowed in if you don't have an Instagram account. And you're almost <laughs> legally required to take pictures of yourself with stinky tofu. And I'm stuck <laughs> at, at your approach to photography as being deliberately non-Instagram. Is that just mm. my dislike of Instagram or am I on to something here? <laughs> well, you know what? I don't have an Instagram either, Dan. So maybe maybe it's the two of us connecting over. Yes, connecting over this. Um, yeah, so the, I, the approach that I took when it came to taking photos was to uh, take landscape photos, which I think is also not very Instagrammable. You know, now Instagram is always the the cube or the portrait mode, but I wanted to be able to take uh, photos that really showed things in action or showed social interactions at play as best I could. So um, that was my approach. And to not make it so uh, cherry-hued and beautiful as Instagram photos tend to be, to not make it so curated feeling, but instead to make it feel real and put the viewer in the Tsai Sitang at that moment in time. So when you were taking the photographs and you went with your, your camera in hand, did you buy first, eat first, or photograph first? Oh, okay. Well, it changed. So every day I would go, I would go two to about four times a day. And my goal was to go at various times of day so that I could take photos of various points at various points within the Tsai Sitang. So 
before it started, as it was setting up, during action, as people were cleaning up, and then afterwards, as it was this empty street that kind of returned back to being a residential urban space for people to just walk up and down and drive up and down. Um, so I guess it really depends on the time of day that I went. Because sometimes, hey, I would see something delicious and I'd say, let me stop. I need to, you know, do research, quote unquote, do research and eat something and enjoy myself and take photos then. Um, so there was no rhyme or reason in terms of when I bought or when I didn't buy. I will say that I did buy something from outside Sasong every single day. And I do when I'm visiting every single day that it's open, I'm there shopping. So I think that my presence, having been there for a while, um, made it a little bit more okay that I was snapping photos. Another aspect was that, um, as you see from the photos, that everybody is still masked up. And everyone there is very weary of sun damage to their skin. And so everyone usually has a hat on or is fully clothed, you know, with sunglasses sometimes. And so there was this layer of anonymity that I think COVID awareness brought with it that made people more okay with being photographed by somebody who's just kind of passing by and walking through the market. You know, I'm always interested in how photographs are documents not just of how something looks but of mm. of other kinds of of senses and and I'm wondering if you find yourself as a photographer taking as a sociologist and a tourist and an, and an insider outsider did you find yourself trying to take a picture and say well this really is a picture that's going to be to try and capture some of that sound or this is an image that's an image but it's really about taste Mm. That's a really hard question. No, no. I'm, one of the key things that I wanted to take a photo of is that cacophony or what I call now, or what Chinese people call now, which is this lively, bustling excitement. I really wanted to figure out a way to photograph that. Um, now, not all of the photos that are in this essay or that I took encapsulate that or focus on that. But a lot of the ones that I tried to do were of people passing by in hordes of crowds with um, vendors calling out and there being action involved. And maybe it looks like uh, a, you know, convoluted mess <laughs> on, the, on, on the screen when you look at it. But what it is, is, is that, that cacophony happening. And so I really try to get people on mopeds, uh, driving by shoppers with umbrellas and people talking. I wanted to get those action shots just to show that bustling nature of the Thai Sizhang. So that was one of the big things that I tried to focus on. Taste. Taste is a little bit harder. Um, you know, I'm, there are far better photographers out there that, that do amazing, beautiful shots of food. Um, you know, food porn shots is what I like to call them because they're just, they make you salivate as you look at that glistening piece of whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, but I did try and at least get the freshness of foods there down in my camera. That was a goal was just to show how fresh things were and how things were being made in the moment to sell. So that was another goal. So let me, let me throw a challenge at you. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about before, but just in listening to you, it seems like 
a fun challenge to just think about is if we challenged you to write a whole other piece for Gastronomica, which you should, um, and but we <laughs> said to you, write about these same markets, but don't bring your camera, bring an audio recorder. What would you be mm. looking to do then? I love oh. the way in which, which, which we ended up talking so much about cacophony and the sounds of liveliness, which I love. I mean, that's what I love about markets. So, so this is, you know, it's a deeply exciting thing. So the paper with a recorder in hand, mm-hmm. what does that look like? That would sound, I think, so much more exciting to me, to be honest. You know, visually, visuals are one thing, and I think that they tell a great story, right? Um but the sounds of things, I'm very audio focused and I'm very conscious of the things that I'm hearing. Like right now, I don't know if you can hear, but there's morning birds chirping right now. The frogs have died down. I can hear the rustle of leaves. And I think that that, when you just hear the soundscape of something, you can get so much more of the almost emotion of things. Not that you can't get that visually by any means from a photograph. Photographs have that emotional impact as well. But what I would do if I could go back to the Tai Sitong and make an audio recording of things is to zero in on what I think of as the key sounds that come to mind, to my mind, when I think about the Tai Sitong. So that is, you know, the breakfast vendor calling out orders. That is the pork meat stall guy chopping, the butcher chopping with a huge cleaver, whack, 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 whack you know, cutting and breaking down uh, a leg of ham. That is the crinkle of plastic bags. You know, I know that plastic bags are not a, go- not a good thing anymore, but when you go to the Thai Sitong, they are this omnipresent item where there is this crinkle of the bags that people put everything into bags and then they bag that bag up and they tie things. And so that's probably what I would focus on. And I would try and immerse myself in the space and try and find new sounds that maybe I hadn't heard or paid attention to before and explore those. I also think just hearing people call out their their little advertisements is, is a great thing to hear as well, because maybe it's just almost like a lullaby <laughs> to me. I'm so used to it. And I love hearing that, that, that call out. And uh, so we'll expect that paper very soon, I guess. <laughs> I'll go I will happily go to Taiwan just to do that. <laughs> See, you know, it's interesting because in some ways a photographer in the market in a marketplace is is it can be disruptive. It it, it can be prying and and there's moments where a vendor doesn't want to have their their photograph taken or it becomes a little bit too much like the state regulator checking in. How did you find yourself negotiating that tension? Was it simply that you had been there enough that you were insider enough to be recognized and outsider enough to recognize that it's fascinating? How did you negotiate the the disruption that comes with taking images? Yeah, yeah. Well, part of it is that insider-outsider space that I sit in. Um, Another is just the way that I look. I'm, you know, I'm not saying I'm... Uh, an amazing person to look at, but I am very tall compared to everyone else and most other people in Taiwan. I'm only, you know, five, nine, but that's very tall. And so I do stick out like a sore thumb already, uh, just walking through the market. I always say 
Um, guaranteed when I walk through a market on a rainy day, I will get at least four umbrellas in my eye because I'm just kind of at that perfect umbrella, you know, eye level. Um, but so I already stick out and people will notice me as I'm walking through. Um, and so that almost plays to my advantage because people have seen me walk through over and over and over again. And so my presence is kind of there and they're aware of it. The other thing that played to my advantage is how camera happy we are nowadays and how normal it is for people to take photos in very everyday spaces. Um, You know, be it a selfie or be it to document what they just ate. They know that that is now a common thing for people to do and it's not off-putting anymore. I think probably if we were to do this, um, you know, a... Uh, 10 years ago or so, it might be a little bit different. But um, that was also something that played to my advantage is just the omnipresence of cameras in in life now. Ellen Miser reminds us that without markets, we do not have neighborhoods. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors and writers from our current and future issue. Thanks, Helen, for joining us. And listeners can read her essay and view her images in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, for more viewing, for more reading, visit gastronomica.org. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.